1: The radical.
0: Fundamental principles of freedom. Rational self-interest. And individual rights. This is the Euron Brook Show. Alright everybody, welcome to Iran Book Show on this Saturday, August 19th. I hope everybody's having a fantastic weekend. Thanks for joining us here on uh, the Iran Book Show to discuss China. All things, uh, all things China. My focus today is uh, is going to be on economics, on the the, the, the state the economic, if you will, state of uh, of China. But I'm happy to answer questions about other issues, uh, foreign policy uh, related issues, U.S. relations with China, um, anything, anything strategic, anything that you think uh, would be interesting. Of course. The Super Chat is open for all questions, not just China-related questions, although uh, China-related questions will get priority. Um, But uh, I will be taking uh, questions on everything else. RDF, thank you. Really appreciate the support. Uh, All right. So, uh, yes, uh, uh, use the Super Chat to ask questions on uh, wherever you want to take the show and whatever questions you have. It has been a tough week. Uh, for China, it, it's for, for for the Chinese economy. For news coming out of China, in terms of uh, its economy, it's really been a tough few months, um, and arguably a tough few years for the Chinese economy. I mean, I, just this week, uh, we've seen the uh, real estate crisis in China uh, extend to uh, additional uh, real estate developers. Uh, we'll talk. We'll talk about that a little bit uh, later on. But but it, it, it seems to be much broader than just a few real estate developers um, uh, that we heard about. Everglade, that filed uh, for kind of default defaulted on debt back two years ago, is now filed officially for bankruptcy in U.S. court under Chapter 15, which allows them to hold off paying U.S. creditors while they restructure the business in China and elsewhere. Uh, and uh, so, so in terms of real estate, but beyond even the, the, the developers themselves, what you're seeing is a lot of the shadow banking system, that is the uh, a variety of private lenders who are not part of the banking official banks. Uh, they are in trouble. Uh, they, 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 they face enormous, um, in, in, they have enormous debts uh, that are basically linked to the value of real estate value of real estate is collapsing as these developers collapse. And as the other thing that came out this week, as real estate prices in China decline. So uh, uh, the official number is that real estate prices are going down maybe two to 5%. Most estimates are projecting that real estate prices are declining. Uh, And this is uh, apartments, uh, condos, Homes in China are declining by 15 to 25 percent in value. 15 to 25 percent in value. Uh, So you're seeing uh, you're seeing a a dramatic uh, decline in the value. Now remember, uh, I mean Americans are pretty dependent on their home and the value of their home, and it's a really important part of, uh, I think, people's net worth. But in China. This is the primary way of so saving. Uh, you know, Chinese uh, the ch- most of the Chinese public is not in the stock market. They're thankful for that. Uh, they, they they don't have saving accounts. They, they don't have money in, in various investments. They have not in real estate. And and uh, many people have more than one apartment. Uh, you know, real estate was supposed to only go up. Remember those? Remember that in the U.S.? Only go up. Uh, and developers offered all kinds of cool, enticing uh, ways to invest in real estate in China without a lot of money up front uh, that led people to invest in projects uh, uh, all over China uh, in uh, in what ultimately became empty neighborhoods, empty cities, empty towns. Uh, and that, that real estate is now being slashed in terms of the value that it has. Um, and it's interesting that the prices are declining really, really fast. And at the same time, Nobody's selling. Nobody wants to sell. I mean, somebody, some people are forced to sell, but nobody wants to sell because the fear is if they start selling, they don't want to recognize these losses. They don't want to acknowledge the value lost. Of course, the longer you hold on to a falling asset, the longer it can fall and, and the deeper your losses become. There is this mythology in America, and I think in in, um, in uh, China as well, that real estate uh, ultimately never declines long term, it's valuable. But that is not true. That is not true. Uh, so real estate, massive problem in China. And real estate has played a huge part uh, in GDP growth, a huge part in the uh, uh, economic growth, particularly over the last 10 to 15 years in China It's been to a large extent real estate infrastructure driven. Um, But is that real economic growth? We'll get to that. At the same time, uh, at least five investment banks are now uh, cutting their projections for China's economic growth this year. Everybody is saying they will miss their 5% GDP target, GDP growth target. Uh, Remember the days where China was growing at 12, 15%? Well, those are long gone, long gone. And um, now, you know, they, they, they can barely, they, they are not even growing at 5%. And arguably, if we got real numbers out of China, if the numbers were accurate, China's probably been, it, it probably is in a recession, pretty deep recession, and might have been in a recession since COVID began. Right. So, but investment banks that are using kind of official numbers, recognizing this isn't happening as we said the shadow banking industry is in real trouble this giant called Shongji, something like that has suspended payments on nearly all of its investment products it plans to restructure its debt it's one of the largest kind of financial companies non-bank financial companies out there in china uh, and um yeah i mean uh, uh, stunning it, it is completely cash strapped And the reason is that a lot of its investments were in real estate, real estate. China's, you know. Remember, Chinese growth is not going from 5% to 3%. Chinese growth is going from 5% to negative some number, negative some significant number. Uh, And uh, we might even officially, uh, Chinese growth will probably be under 3%, but unofficially, in terms of real Reality: uh, Chinese growth is going to below zero. Uh, Chinese assets are being sold off. Uh, the uh, stock market is way underperforming uh, stock markets globally. Uh, way has been way underperforming stock markets globally since COVID, uh, and it continues to be a uh, a poor investment. Uh, there was a slight rally in July, and it's given back everything and and. Uh, uh, you know, turning negative uh, on top of that. Uh, in addition to that, China's uh, China's super leveraged. I mean, people complain about the amount of leverage we have in the United States. China is, is uh, in terms of the total amount of leverage, is much more levered than the US. Maybe the central government isn't as much, the federal government isn't as much. But if you take into account all the different forms of government. If you take into account all the different uh, entities in the economy and you look at households and everything else, it is well over 300 percent of GDP. It's a real challenge. Uh, so if they want to, quote, stimulate the economy, we'll get to stimulate the economy in a minute, where are they going to borrow the money from and uh, who's going who's to lend it to them given the risks that are inherent in uh, lending money into a highly- unbelievably leveraged economy. Um, Let's see. uh, One of the things happening in real estate is that uh, this is spreading from privately owned real estate company to now government owned, state backed developers are also getting hit 18 of the 38 listed state builders have reported preliminary losses for the first half. It's probably more than that. These are just preliminary. We'll see what it turns out to be. Uh, Remember, most of these are government-backed, and yet they're still suffering enormously. Uh, All right, let's see. Uh, Even Tencent, the uh, big technology company, the big uh, successful technology company in China, China. Uh, is seeing uh is seeing sales uh not hit expectations uh, be dramatically below expectations and are struggling all right so across the board uh, china's economy is struggling right now and and you could say yeah it's just a recession, everybody goes through a recession. we'll deal with that in a minute so the question is uh, there are a few questions one is why does China get out of this, just like the United States has a recession to get out of it? The economy goes back to growing fast. Is China just another uh, economy that can just have another recession? Is that a reality? Uh, and so so what are the causes of the economic slowdown? What are the prospects for China moving into the future? And what consequences does this have for the Chinese Communist Party? What consequences does this have to the CCP the cCP is different than the American system of government. Does that matter in terms of how China will respond to what's going on and in terms of how it how it exits this particular struggle this particular uh challenge that it faces uh, so let's first turn to the causes and and to get to the causes you know I find it interesting i'm looking I'm looking at some people who are writing right now about the causes. Uh, and and it, seems to be, it seems to be that the causes right now are, are basically, it's demographic collapse, it's demography, which is certainly a factor, right? It's demography and it's, um, you know, it's always investment. It's exactly what happened to Japan. Um, it, you know, they'll see a collapse and then maybe they'll go through a period of stagnation. If that's the outcome, you know that's really, really bad for China. We'll get to why that is, but um, uh, you know, but China is 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 really struggling. is is really having a hard time, uh, and it, it it is not in the same position as Japan was when the Japanese real estate market collapsed in what was it eighty nine or um, nineteen ninety. It's not the same partially because China is a lot poorer than Japan was at that point in time. And China has, well, we'll talk about it. China has an authoritarian government and Japan did not. And even so, Japan has stagnated since then. If you look at GDP per capita in Japan uh, relative to the United States, it's, it's pretty pathetic. I mean, it's, it's like even adjusted for, for uh, purchasing power parity for, for the cost of living, it's almost half. It's just, it's just higher than half of the GDP per capita. And yes, do you know what the GDP per capita, I mean, people think of China as this. What's the GDP per capita of, 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 uh, of China right now? Well, if you, uh, it, just straight GDP per capita is about $12,000. Anybody know what U.S. GDP per capita is right now? $12,000. Uh, now, that's amazing, given that it was less than 1000 when Mao died, less than a thousand. Right. What do you think GDP per capita is? Um, Japan is not one of the richest countries in the world. I mean, Japan would be Japan on a, on a purchasing power parity would be poorer than Mississippi. So it's 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 rich, but uh, Japan is. Poorer than you know. It's it's somewhere at the level of it's poorer than most countries in Europe, which is pretty sad. So China has gone from under a thousand to twelve thousand, and if you adjust for purchasing power parity, if you adjust for the cost of living in a sense, then China's GDP per capita is seventeen thousand six hundred fifty-seven. Seventeen thousand, uh, about half of Japan's. Japan's about thirty-five thousand, right? I'm doing GDP per PPP. So we've gone from uh, China is about half of Japan. Japan's 35, U.S., PPP, non-PPP, U.S. is 80.' Um, is around 80. But if you adjust to the cost of living, and you know this is tricky because cost of living is not the same all over the United States. But if you adjust to the cost of living, the United States is 65. So 65 versus 17. Sixty-five versus seventeen. Uh, I don't know who this Aikyo is here, who is a big uh, China uh, promoter. You know, I'd love to know what his uh, what agenda is. is. Um, anyway, just to give you a, a sense, right? China, but here's, here's the point, and I want I wanna talk about I wanna talk about how China became rich, or relatively rich, right? How it went. From uh, below, basically a thousand dollars GDP per capita on a on a again price uh, purchasing power parity uh, to over seventeen thousand to almost eighteen thousand. How did that happen? What drove that? Right. And uh, to do that, we need to understand the Chinese. What happened in China, starting in 1978, uh, you know, and accelerating, I think, during the uh, post uh, Tiananmen Square, uh, and and then what happened, what what's happened over the last 15 years, uh, because the Chinese growth model and the Chinese um, uh, Chinese performance economically, and the cause of Chinese wealth is really super important, right? Is uh, super important to understanding what 's happening right now in china if we don 't know if we don 't understand the history, if we don 't understand why China became relatively wealthy, why China had the highest growth rates in human history really I mean astounding economic growth if we don 't understand that then we can 't understand why it 's struggling now, uh, because something fundamentally has changed, something fundamentally has changed in Chinese in the Chinese political system.
2: The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. J-j-jumba. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void. we're prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Not, uh, it's not the case that uh,
0: Chinese philosophy has changed. The, the fundamental philosophy of the Chinese government has not changed. But what's changed is the way they're applying it and and the way they're applying it economically and and the perspective. Xi has a very different perspective than his predecessors. Now, I am not a a Chinese expert. I I don't spend all my time on China. Um, But I have a broad understanding of what's happened in China. So names, dates, I'm not going to get right. Uh, But, you know, I think it's important to understand the big picture of what happened in China uh, in terms of economic growth. Obviously, in 1978, China was an uh, unbelievably poor country. It was one of the poorest countries in, in the world. It it had, you know, it had gone through periods of starvation. It had gone through periods of of massive famine, of, of millions and millions, tens of millions of people dying. Uh, obviously, it, it was a an authoritarian state ruled by a, a brutal, uh, system and a brutal dictator, Mao Zedong. And in 1978, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the, the person who took over the Chinese regime, uh, it was still authoritarian, it's still authoritarian today, it was Deng Xiaoping. And, and Deng, Deng was, um, had been a, a, a communist loyalist. He had been uh, Mao Zedong's right hand. He had been responsible for the deaths of thousands, millions, probably, of Chinese people. He had done some horrible, horrific, disaster things. But he had uh, pissed off, uh, you know, uh, Mao Zedong at some point, and he was sent out uh, as part of the Cultural Revolution uh, to, uh, you know, to the countryside to live among the peasants. And I think uh, when he was out there, he, he realized at least one thing. He realized that whatever they were doing, whatever the Chinese authorities were doing, if their goal was somehow economic success, if their goal was somehow prosperity and and, and a good life for the Chinese people or uh, uh, they were failing miserably, the countryside was poor, dirt poor, people were starving. The the, the collective farms were not working. Nothing was working. Now, he didn't understand why it was a failure. He had no clue why it was a failure. But he was observant enough, smart enough to realize that it was a failure. He still continued to believe, to his dying breath as far as I can tell, he still continued to believe that the Chinese people needed a centralized authority in order to run their world. He continued to realize he he, he continues to believe that uh, China had to be authoritarian, that it would break up, that it would go, go into civil war, that uh, the Chinese people could not survive unless they were ruled with an iron fist by an authoritarian leader. But he came to really question the fundamental ideas of communism. And by the time he came to power in nineteen seventy eight, he was not really a communist anymore. He was a dictator, he was an authoritarian, but he was not a communist. And what he was looking for is how do we as the leaders, as the rulers, as the philosopher kings of China, how do we bring prosperity to the Chinese people? Because we have failed. Mao Zedong failed. And the, and, and, and some of the previous uh, 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 di- di- dynasties in China uh, 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 Previous emper- emperors of China failed. So what, So uh, he turned to the rest of the world and, and he started to look at, you know, he went to Japan and he was blown away by Japan. Just blown away. I remember, China had been isolated, been closed. Its leaders had not traveled anywhere. You know, you could argue why that is and the idea of China being the center of the world. But uh, they, they knew nothing about what was going on, and they knew very little about what was going on in the rest of the world. And the ones who didn't know kept quiet because they didn't want to offend Mao and the other operators of the Chinese Communist Party. But Deng actually ventured out, and what he saw blew him away. He saw people who were so much richer than the Chinese that it was hard to imagine. And he came back to China and said, I I, I want to be like them. We, We want to achieve that kind of wealth. We can't let our people be free, God forbid, politically free. We need to guide this from the top. But we need to find a way to bring that energy, that wealth creation that somehow is in Japan. And it turns out in the U.S. and in other countries, we need to bring that to China. We need to become rich. And slowly, and I've, I've, I've told this story in other f- uh, contexts, so I'm not going to repeat it all here, but slowly what they did is l- economically free up, at least to a large extent, certain regions in China. They took the restraints off. They uh, allowed for private businesses. They allowed for entrepreneurial activity. They allowed for people to migrate from place to place to find jobs. They allowed for real business competition. They allowed people to get rich. I think I've told this story, but there's the story that the first guy who got, became a millionaire in China was a guy who had these carts that sold um, sunflower seeds. And he had a special formula and they were really tasty. And they took off and he f- basically franchised them all across China, all across this region of China, and he, he, was, he was rich. And the, the local authorities wanted to crush him. I mean, how dare he be rich? We're a communist country, and Deng Xiaoping said, no, stop it. This is exactly what we want. We want people to become rich. And I realized that I'm going to become rich all at the same time. There's going to be inequality for a while. I mean, he had a better understanding of these things than some American leftists, right? But in order for all of us to become rich, in order for China to become a rich country, we need to allow individuals to be rich. And indeed, uh, for a while their being rich was viewed as a virtue and encouraged and supported by the government. They'd abandoned communism completely, and they they still, there's no communism in China today. Except that they call themselves the Communist Party, and they use Mao, and they use Chinese symbolism and so on. To provide them with legitimacy of power, going back to the, the heroic fight of Mao Zedong against the colonizers and, and against the fascists, right? Uh, but uh, it's just a pretense, right? It's just a pretense. There is no communism in China. So uh, you know, Deng basically started opening China up to foreign capital, to foreign investment. At the same time, he allowed Chinese entrepreneurs, he allowed for Chinese entrepreneurs, he allowed people to become millionaires, billionaires, ultimately. He allowed a thriving tech sector. And of course, when Deng died, this was continued by um, uh, people who followed him, the, the leaders who followed him. And generally, there was a movement for liberalizing the Chinese economy, a movement away from everything being centralized, a movement away from the state running everything, a movement towards privatization, a movement towards at least the pretense of private property, a movement towards a market economy I mean they have uh, stock markets in uh, in China no communist country has stock markets uh, you know they have a they have a a, a private real estate market I, I know a lot of countries that are not that are, that 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 are not that are it, purportedly capitalist that don't have private real estate markets. It, it, it you know China moved in the direction of more economic freedom and at the same time continued political repression. Although even there, there were periods in which the reins were loosened a little bit and a little bit more free speech was allowed and you could run a bookstore in Shanghai that actually carried, you know, uh, uh, liberal and free market thinkers, and Ayn Rand could be published in Chinese, and even me, I could be published in Chinese and and sold in Chinese bookstores. So there was a period there where where, where even the restraints, political speech restraints, were moderated, at least to an extent. And of course, we know what happens when you liberate an economy, when you unleash entrepreneurial energy, in particular, in a culture, a culture that values education, values progress, that values knowledge, that values entrepreneurship, which I think historically China has always valued. If you look at Chinese minorities in countries like Malaysia, Indonesia, majorities in Singapore, Hong Kong when they're allowed to be free this is a culture that supports massive amounts of progress, innovation and achievement so there was a massive amount of wealth creation during this period real wealth creation there was was a a boom, there was real uh, uh, increase in the standard of living and the quality of life. People uh, left the countryside, left the poverty of the countryside, and and the countryside was becoming less poor because the countryside was was allowed to have again pseudo private property and allowed to basically get rid of the collectivized farming and allowed to privately sell their goods. And when they did that, of course, suddenly they had more goods to sell. So the economic liberalization of China created an explosion of economic growth. And if you add to that the fact that Western countries, Western, not countries, Western investors, private investors, whether it's banks, private equity funds, venture capitalists, private, private individuals, companies, corporations started pouring capital and investment into China. This allowed China to leapfrog many of the, you know, the requirement to build their own capital, to invest their own capital. Suddenly they got capital and knowledge and know-how from overseas. Some of that knowledge and know-how was brought into China voluntarily. Some of that knowledge and know-how was extracted by Chinese authority in order to get access to the Chinese market. And some of that knowledge and know-how was out and out stolen by uh, by the Chinese government, by Chinese corporate spying, by by, by Chinese. But nevertheless, it came in, and, and and this resulted in you know just unbelievable again, unbelievable economic growth, going from one of the poorest countries in the world to seventeen thousand GDP uh, per capita and uh, PPP adjusted is phenomenal. And this is, of course, averages. So if you go to a city like Shanghai, you can see a thriving, not just Shanghai, Shenzhen, Guangzhou, uh, Beijing, uh, Guangzhou, all these, all these cities, you see a thriving middle class, a real thriving middle class. By the way, it's not true that China doesn't have intellectual property rights. It has a legal system that is very strongly defends intellectual property rights within China. It just doesn't have any respect for other people's intellectual property rights. But if you... Uh, Adam Ossoff, an objectivist law professor, and expert on in intellectual property rights, was actually invited to China to help them craft laws in China to protect intellectual property rights. Now, they don't apply them consistently as, you know, because they're an authoritarian regime. They That's how authoritarian regimes function, right? But they have the infrastructure. They arguably, you could argue, they have better laws on the books protecting intellectual property rights than the United States does because they had some of the world's best experts come and write them for them, Uh, people who had learned from uh, the experience of the United States and Europe and other countries in terms of uh, writing these laws, and they're relatively new. Now, all of that happened between
1: 1978
0: and uh, and 20... 2012 or 2014 or really till the financial, the great financial crisis, really till, I mean, I'd say the real key marker for China is 2008. And of course, you had some difficult periods through there. I mean, the horror and the horrific, uh, uh, you know, uh, what happened in Tiananmen Square, right, and and the murder of, of tens of thousands of their own people, of young people of people demonstrating just because they wanted more freedom. And and Deng Xiaoping, in spite of being the great liberator from the perspective of economic liberty, Deng Xiaoping ordered the tanks into the streets and ordered the slaughter of his own people, his own young people. China, of course, also made the unbelievable mistake of, of uh, buying into the, uh, the, the, the environmental hysteria buying into uh the environmental panic uh that was going on uh through the world. They bought into kind of the the the, the stories of uh of uh the 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 left in Europe and in the United States over overpopulation and catastrophic climate whatever, global cooling I guess it was back then, and that the world was gonna come an end because of overpopulation. And the response of Chinese authorities in an attempt to fight overpopulation globally it, believing that they were caught up in this Malthusian trap where they could not produce enough food for the people they preempted that by establishing a one-child one-child policy which has turned into an unmitigated disaster for China because uh, it, it'll have one of the fastest shrinking populations in the world it's had a, a very low birth rate for a long long time because it was imposed by law and now that the law is gone Everybody's already used to that low birth birth rates. Are couples are not, even though they're incentivized to, they're not having more children than one child. It's also very expensive to live in China and to raise children in China. So, you know, China has um, has, has seen this uh, from 1978 till 2008. Saw this incredible success. Because it based its, I'd say it, it, it basically based its economic ideas, it basically based its economic programs on the idea that markets actually work, on the idea that America, the United States, with all its flaws and all its problems, is actually a model to be emulated,
1: at least when it comes. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper?
0: The United States was the model. the West was the model. markets were the model to emulate. And, and China did that. And basically they you know, people were coming up with all these names for the, the kind of capitalism they had, capitalism together with authoritarianism. But of course, capitalism with authoritarianism is an unstable model. It cannot survive. One of the two have to give. Either authoritarianism has to disappear, or capitalism will disappear. Free markets will disappear. I think the tipping point was 2008-2009, the great financial crisis. The great financial crisis did not impact China that much, although it did. But the bigger lesson that China took from the great financial crisis is the impact the crisis had in the United States and the response the United States had to the great financial crisis. America did not, did not respond to the great financial crisis by saying, yep, we need more markets. Yep, the solution and the way to achieve economic growth and growing GDP and growing standard of living and quality of life is to embrace markets. That's not what the U.S. government did. Instead, they said in order to save capitalism, we have to go against capitalism. We have to increase regulations. We have to increase government spending. We have to bail out all the banks. We have to stimulate everybody and everything. And China looked at that and said, huh, this market thing is not working for the U.S. Maybe we need a pivot. Maybe we need to look for something else. And I think starting in 2009, China became more and more skeptical of markets. And in 2012, uh, uh, Xi came to power. And, uh, you know, he definitely brought with him a heightened skepticism of markets. And, and, and during those, th- that period, Europe then had its own massive crisis, if you remember the Greek financial crisis. And China was looking at the West and saying, huh, is this really the model we want to emulate? And of course, at the same time, the Chinese are authoritarians. And when looking for solutions to how to achieve Chinese economic growth and looking at the West and saying, well, that model is not acceptable. What model should we adopt? Well, Xi knew exactly what model to adopt. Um, from his perspective, the slowdown in economic growth in China and ultimately uh, you know, what was going in the U.S. and in Europe were all a consequence of too much free markets. He'd come to the same conclusion as the Bush administration, as the Biden admi- not the Biden, the uh, the Obama administration—had, and he came to the same conclusion. And that conclusion was mm, too much capitalism, too much freedom, too much uh, too much free markets. What we need is is more government controls. What we need is is more of a mixed economy. What we need is more government management, government guidance, government steering. Call it what you want of the economy and really it didn't happen fast because i think she particularly in his first term was still feeling it out the levers of power in which he could pull and which you're not also he had a he had a you know the chinese communist party functions in very complex ways the supreme the leader of the party doesn't have complete control i think she now does but but when he started out he didn't have complete control and there were significant elements within Significant elements within the Chinese leadership that wanted more economic liberty, that actually still believed in markets, as hard as it is to believe. And, and refused to let go of the, of the vision that they had had 10 years earlier, 20 years earlier, of achieving massive amounts of wealth and becoming the largest economy by unleashing these market forces. And they continued to push for that. So Xi couldn't move very quickly. But he moved. He moved slowly and systematically. And I remember being in China in in 20, uh, I think, 16, and then in 2018 and 19. And in 2016, everybody was still, hmm, this Xi guy. I mean, everybody here, I'm talking about my hosts, Chinese academics, Chinese freedom fighters. Chinese uh, uh, liberals in the classical liberal sense, Chinese libertarians. I mean, this is a period in which uh, they established a Hayek Society at the, at the uh, um, um, God, what's the name of the university? Maybe it'll come to me, maybe it won't. But at the major university in Beijing. And, um, and then uh, on one of my visits, they established the Ayn Rand Society. Inside the university at, at uh, a, a, again, one of the top universities in uh, Beijing, in China. And these people, they thought that, no, Xi is, Xi is just, he's just uh, trying to stop corruption. He's just trying to clean shop. He really is a believer. He's a believer in freedom, in, in, in markets at least. And he won't do anything. By 2018, certainly by 2019, their opinion had changed completely. He was not only clamping down on economic liberty, on economic freedom. He was clamping down on whatever political freedom was allowed, whatever free speech was available. He was shutting down free market think tanks. He was shutting down the clubs at the universities. He was not allowing me to speak at the university. I mean, it was the first time in China... Where I was censored by the government. The government called the university and said he cannot give a talk tomorrow. You can do it at a, it wasn't, it wasn't Xinggao University, no. Um, He cannot, um, he can speak at a hotel, he can speak at some private venue, but he can't speak at a university. And by the way, professors are not allowed to go and listen to his talk. Neither are students. So we had to reschedule the talk. To do at a uh, at, at a um, uh, at a hotel, professors some professors did show up, students did not. Um, and It was the first time. First time I felt, hmm. I, I knew I, I I knew we'd been watched. That was obvious from my first visit. Um, uh, not my first visit, from my second visit to China in two thousand seven. It was either seven or eight. Uh, when uh, when uh, Atlas Shrugged was published in, in Chinese. But uh, we were being watched, but we were not being stopped. This was the first time we were stopped. And of course, later on, when I tried to go to China, I was told, yeah, don't come. No point, don't come. So... And then, of course, you remember the Jack Ma story? Jack Ma who was the richest man in China at the time um, and who had been incredibly successful, incredibly innovative. I mean, China had been incredibly innovative in social media, primarily in bringing payment systems into social media. It was way ahead of the United States in electronic payments, way ahead of the United States in electronic banking uh, indeed, and all of it integrated into its social media. In many ways, uh, uh, you know, Alibaba was uh, in some ways ahead of Amazon, and uh, it was what's the other? Uh, uh, Tencent was uh, was ahead in some ways of Facebook, and uh, you know, it, it, they had spun out insurance companies and finance companies and. And Jack Ma was, was one of the richest people in the world, the richest man in China, and he had been uh, respected by the people within the Chinese Communist Party because he had brought all this economic growth and he had brought all this wealth, and they realized they needed these kind of, they needed these, these entrepreneurs. And, and during that period, these, the, the entrepreneurship flourished and uh, incredible successes, Some of it driven by uh, government subsidies, but most of it not. Most of it driven by a private economy and U.S. venture capital and uh, American and European capital. And it was a boom, a massive boom. I think Xi, around the time of COVID, around the time of lockdowns, and remember the Chinese were the ones who invented lockdowns. They were the first ones to lock down in a sense. The West copied China. The West became China. And during that period, Jack Ma, at a conference, dared to criticize the Chinese central bank, criticize Chinese financial regulations, said something like, if you want continued economic growth, if you want continued economic success, lay off And his reward for that was that he basically disappeared. His uh, IPO of Ant Group, which was the insurance and finance arm, was basically shut down. The IPO was. Uh, he became a lot less rich. His wealth deteriorated by in dramatic fashion. And then other entrepreneurs were shut down. Other, uh, you know, the the, the basically state mechanism started to enforce regulations, go in and regulate businesses, entrepreneurship particularly in tech, was discouraged. Xi reoriented the economy and it started started reorienting the economy somewhere around 2016 towards state-run enterprises and away from the private sector. He made it harder and harder and harder for the private sector to thrive and be successful. But there was still momentum. There was still this amazing momentum that China had during this period from the private sector. But as we know, the more you regulate, the more you control, the more money you take from one sector to another, the slower the economic growth is going to become. And that's what's happened. Add to that the fact that both the Trump administration and the Biden administration are being aggressively uh, anti-China, if you will. Both in in terms primarily in terms of the words that they use in terms of the uh, arguments, but also tariffs and and just talking China down and talking uh, you know war up, which I think is a huge mistake. But talking all that up is um, has led to uh, real decoupling. Uh, American companies moving facilities out of China. I, some of that was already happening because of the labor costs, but some of it is clearly a result of the last two administrations' antagonism towards China, moving production to India, to Vietnam, to other places. Venture capital stopped investing in China. Sequoia Capital just spun off their Chinese venture capital arm, and American money is no longer going to flow into China. American investors have withdrawn from China. Some of that... Rational economic calculation because of what Xi was doing. Some of it, though, geopolitical, I think, errors by the U.S. government that has led to a fleeing of capital uh, from China. And and this decoupling, which I don't think ultimately serves American interest. Um, so this is, this is kind of where we are. And so if you look at the Chinese economy, oh, one other thing I want to say. During this period, I'd say primarily over the last 10 years, we, we, you know, uh, the, the Chinese government was under these heavy pressure to achieve uh, significant economic growth, to achieve particular numbers in terms of growth. Um, and one of the ways in which this was achieved is that the, 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 the Chinese government gave the regional governments targets for, for, for their growth. And a lot of these regional go- governments, what they did was they borrowed huge amounts of money and poured it into real estate construction. They understood that the way GDP is measured, if you spend money on construction, whether that construction is ultimately used or not, it increases GDP. GDP. So if your GDP target is X and you achieve it, you don't care if the real estate ultimately is used or not, if the road to nowhere is actually used or not, if the fast train almost nobody uses is actually used or not. What you care is that the money was spent and GDP went up. So huge amounts of money went into real estate in order to drive, artificially drive up GDP. What you're seeing right now is the collapse of that ridiculous idea because you had to borrow ultimately uh, you know local governments borrowed real estate companies borrowed everybody the, the the people who bought the condo the apartments borrowed everybody was borrowing ultimately somebody has to pay there has to be some production there has to be some wealth creation in order to pay back the debts but so much of this construction was Um, was non-productive construction, that there was no source of revenue to pay the debts. And that's what's going on right now. So if you had to ask, why is this economic decline happening? Why are these economic problems happening? And why I don't think this is temporary and China will overcome it and go back to large economic growth it's because the Chinese, China abandoned the model that led to what people call the Chinese miracle. It abandoned markets. It abandoned economic liberalization. It abandoned the private sector in favor of state-run enterprises. And we know that state-run enterprises are going to hit a brick wall. We know that state-run enterprises do not work. We know that central planning, in spite of the fact that we in America want to try it, we know it doesn't work. Never has, never will. And yes, at the same time, it's hitting demographic collapse. But you see, this is how bad economists in the U.S. are. This is how pathetic they are. Because today, it's sexy and popular and in to believe in central planning and industrial policy. So it can't be that that is causing Chinese economic problems. can't be that. So, what is it? Well, it's demography. It's
2: um, not enough stimulus from the government. Judy was boring. Hello. Then, Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now, Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs>
1: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Um,
0: it's, you know, just exactly what happened to Japan back then. It's all kind of economic macro kind of fidgeting numbers thingies. Uh, you know, it's, a, it's an export-driven economy and countries around the world don't want to buy their exports anymore. But the reality is that what China is facing is uh, the culmination of 10 years of it slowly but systematically moving away from what led to its success, which is more government intervention, more government controls, and at the same time, no political liberty and no political freedom. So what you're seeing right now is in spite of this demographic collapse, in spite of demographic collapse, what you're seeing is a population of young people at the prime, well, not the prime, but at the beginning of their work careers, now working. I mean, you think that the United States has a problem with young people sitting in their mother, in their parents' basement playing video games. It is a fraction of the problem the Chinese have. They have over 20% youth unemployment, over 20%. It is so high and it is so depressing that they just decided this month to stop reporting youth unemployment. That should give you a sense. And it's not just youth unemployment. There's a cultural malaise in China, particularly among young, young people. A cultural malaise that suggests we don't want to work hard. We've had it. We work hard, we get nowhere. Cost of living just goes up. And we're, we're, we're achieving nothing. I think it's called the lie down movement. I'm just going to lie down. I'm not going to work. Whatever happens, happens. I'd rather be poor than, than, than work long hours. So young people don't have jobs. The ones who do have jobs aren't happy. And this is the real brewing problem within China. It's the extent that these young people at some point decide that they've had it to the extent that at some point they decide that maybe it's the regime's fault. We saw an inkling of it in those protests at the beginning of this year, the blank white cards, where they were protesting the zero COVID restrictions. Imagine if China goes into recession and even more people are unemployed, and people see their prospects for the future gone. And this is the real risk for the Chinese Communist Party. And that is, when the Chinese lose hope in a, in, a, in a future with more riches, after 40 years of being used to economic growth and economic success and more and more people moving into the cities and more and more people rising from poverty into middle class, what happens then? And do we see another Tiananmen Square? And will the soldiers shoot their own people again? And will it just be crushed all at once? You could see real political unrest in China if the economic stagnation, if economic stagnation sets in and continues. And there's no reason the stagnation will, will abate given the tendency of Chinese to move away from markets and to respond and to do what European economists are suggesting for them to do, which is grow the public sector, stimulate. I mean, right now, what's happening is, I didn't mention this early, is that the, the currency is is, uh, is plummeting versus the dollar. That dollar, you remember the dollar that was going to implode and the bricks were going to take over? Well, Right now, the yuan is collapsing vis-a-vis the dollar. It's at its lowest rate, I think, in 20 or 25 years, just like the ruble is collapsing. I, I'm not sure about the Brazilian, South African, and what is the other, and Indian currencies, but they're not, I, I can't believe that any of them are doing particularly well against the dollar, and 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 certainly uh, South African and and, and uh, Brazilian their economies are not exactly thriving. Brazil is doing better, but uh, but but uh, South Africa not at all. So this is not currency manipulation. The, the the Chinese government is trying to hold the currency up. They're trying to. Buy as many yuan, they're trying to do the exact opposite, and the market is driving it down. Indeed, the whole idea of currency manipulation with regard to the yuan, with regard to Chinese currency, has been a a political talking point by Washington, D.C., nobody's forever, and they've all been wrong, and I've been saying they've been wrong for 20 years now. The yuan, if anything, has always been overpriced. Yep, the dollar's going to collapse, I've been hearing that since nineteen eighty. Any minute now, any day, the dollar's gonna collapse. AJ, come back in 10 years and tell me about the dollar collapsing. Any day now. Problem with the dollar collapsing is there's nothing else that's better than the dollar. It collapses versus what? I've <laughs> talked about this. I did a whole show on the dollar. Versus what? I agree, fiat currency is, is really, really bad but what alternative is there right now? I mean, that is acceptable politically. I'd love to see gold become money, but gold is not becoming money anytime soon. And every other currency in the world is worse than the dollar. Dollar might be bad. Every other currency is worse, particularly the yuan. So yuan is collapsing right now vis-a-vis the dollar. But that, of course, I know it's Peter Schiff's thesis, but it's been Peter Schiff's thesis for over 20 years. I've been hearing the same thesis for 20 years, and it just hasn't happened. At some point, you have to say, maybe Peter's wrong. I I hate to say it. I like Peter Schiff a lot, but maybe Peter's wrong. He was wrong in 2007 and 8. He's been wrong the last couple of years. Dollar still hasn't collapsed. You're certainly wrong in 2008, 7, 8, 9, when I was on TV together with Peter Schiff, and he was saying gold is going to the stratosphere's 30,000, on TV, sitting next to me, and I was going, I don't think so. Turns out I was right. He was wrong. But, you know, again, it doesn't mean he won't be right in the future, but it doesn't look like he's right right now. So, I, I, you know, if you're betting on the dollar collapsing, good luck to you. I wouldn't be placing that bet. But one of the things that a lower, cheaper currency does is it makes your goods more affordable overseas. So you can expect to see an uptake in exports, even though up until last month, exports in China were plummeting and imports were plummeting. Both were plummeting. Of course, they're related. Right? They're related. If you export less, you have fewer dollars to do the imports with. Balance of payments, right? And, uh, uh, but exports, I expect, will go up. We will all be buying more Chinese stuff. Uh, They will be importing less because they have to pay dollars for those, and the dollars are more expensive. So they will be importing fewer goods, uh, which means a lower standard of living for them. So, you know, the, 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 that is how I see it playing out. I see, uh, you know, generally global stagnation. Um, and uh, in, in, the US, uh, in the U.S. stagnation, I see China stagnating. Uh, but I think that is basically, uh, China's going to shrink and then stagnate. Unless there's dramatic changes uh, in China or in the United States. I mean, what the U.S. should do right now, it should have joined the TPP, the Trans-Pacific, uh, whatever, PPP, the Trans-Pacific um, Trade Deal. TTP, TPP, something like that. Uh, but, but Trump, Trump walked away from that. I think the United States could still join it. It's a great deal. It's a way to increase trade with the rest of Asia while, in a sense, isolating China and allowing China to join the TPP only under very severe constraints, where, for example, it can't steal property and things like that. Uh, United States should enhance its relationship with other Asian countries, enhance trade with other Asian countries, have free trade deals with as many Asian countries as possible. The United States should support its allies, South Korea, Taiwan, and Japan, in building up military capabilities to defend themselves against potential Chinese aggression. The one thing that can save the United States from going to war in the Pacific is to make Japan, Taiwan, and South Korea so strong that they can take care of China themselves without U.S. troops getting involved. And I think that's very doable. Just look at what... uh, Ukraine is doing to Russia, and you can just imagine what a fully equipped, fully trained Taiwan, never mind Japan and South Korea, could do to China. So the United States should encourage, not encourage, but, uh, you know, trade deficits have never mattered. Let, Let investors do what they will. We should stop i was uh, uh, I saw an interview today on uh, Ayn Rand University, uh, on the Ayn Rand website on the YouTube channel with uh, Scott McDonald, who is a china expert um, and uh, spent time i think in the military before now as a civilian, really researching in depth into China uh, from a geopolitical strategic perspective. Um, so I highly recommend, if you're interested in China, to go catch that video. I think it's the latest video on the YouTube, on the Ayn Rand Institute YouTube channel. So I encourage you all to go over there and catch it. He doesn't talk about the economy, but he talks about the politics, the philosophy, and the geopolitical kind of lineup uh, and, and arraignment. And I think he does a, 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 an excellent, excellent job in, uh, in in presenting that. And what he suggests is... The U.S. politicians need to just stop talking about China all the time. They, they need to stop, you know, uh, egging them on. We should support Taiwan 100% and let the Chinese do whatever they want with that. But in the, it, free of that, we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't be intervening. Let Americans, American individuals and American businesses decide whether they want to invest there. Let American individuals decide whether they want to trade You want to buy something for China or not, that's up to you. It's not the government's job to tell you who to trade with. Let Americans decide who to trade with and who not to trade with. Let Americans decide where to invest and where not to invest. What we should be focused on is is our own problems, our own freedom, our own liberty. And, you know, securing... Strategic supply chains so I don't think we should be unshoring semiconductor manufacturing like I don't know Vivek says or whatever although Vivek has taken the line about the importance of Taiwan and semiconductors it's almost like he listened to the show I did on that and and took it from that but I I think we should be encouraging um, finding ways to encourage semiconductor companies to go wherever outside of Taiwan to build the semiconductors. And what we should be focusing on is what America should have always been focusing on, which is protecting the shipping lanes, And protecting the ability of international shipping to move from Asia to the United States free of harassment by the Chinese or anybody else who might want to harass it. In other words, we should be focusing on U.S. national interest, national security interest, properly understood. I mean, there are a lot of things we could do. We we should be offering, generally, we should be offering Chinese and Hong Kong, in in visas to the U.S. if they come here. It, there's a lot of lot of different things, but uh, um, anyway, uh, yeah, I think the U.S. is too obsessed with China as a national security threat. It's almost like it's egging it on to war it's 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 like both the left and the right in the united states want a cold war part 2 they they like cold war 1 I. I think each side thought they made real gains in cold war 1 and they want to replicate it I, I mean the right believes that a war brings the country together it unites us it gives us purpose it gives us mission and and that's what happened during the cold war and what we need is to resurrect that a cold war you know encourages people to be more conservative supposedly Uh, The left sees it as, uh, you know, again, a Cold War again, bringing the country together, but it's an opportunity for us to to unionize and it's an opportunity for us to do more central planning and industrial planning to combat it. But everybody, left and right, wants a Cold War. That's pretty stunning, pretty stunning. All right. Um, As I said, questions? Questions? Please use the Super Chat for questions. We're way behind on our goal again today. Yesterday we didn't make it, so it would be great if we could make it today. It's not good to have uh, multiple days um, uh, multiple days without it. Uh, I'm trying to get Scott McDonald on, so uh, uh, it's been difficult to communicate with him for some reason. But I'm trying to get Scott McDonald on. Hopefully we will. Uh, I'll remind my assistant to try him again and get him on because he was he was very good on the Ayn Rand. I mean, he has been for years now very good on China um, and it would be a great conversation to have him on um, in terms of that. I mean, uh, one of the things that's uh, interesting that Scott says is he doesn't believe China has uh, has the capacity to take Taiwan. He thinks it would be too costly, too devastating for them. Uh, uh, Taiwan is too well prepared. Uh, of course, Taiwan could be much better prepared and, and he thinks that's the entire national security focus in the Pacific, or not the entire, a big chunk of the national security focus in the Pacific should be on getting Taiwan prepared, on giving it the resources, the weapons, the training, uh, and the resources to be prepared. And the more Taiwan is prepared, the more costly it is for China to, to, to try an invasion
1: And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com.
2: No purchase necessary. BDW void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Ukraine is serving
0: an important purpose here in showing the Chinese how hard it is. So, uh, and, and I think the same thing should be true in terms of preparing the South Koreans and the Japanese. And the South Korean and Japanese might have a much stronger national interest in supporting the Taiwan than even the United States has, because they're right there. Just like Europe has a much stronger incentive in supporting uh, Ukraine than the United States has. Now, I think us giving weapons to Ukraine makes a huge amount of sense. I think us giving weapons, uh, you know, selling weapons to Taiwan makes a huge amount of sense. Uh, now and and if a war starts, uh, I you know, I, I think as long as TSMC... Is in Taiwan and we're so dependent on it. We might have to defend Taiwan. Um, uh, again, Scott doesn't think so. Scott uh, uh, um, uh, McDonald doesn't think so. But um, but even but you know, no matter uh, the idea would be that we don't have to defend Taiwan. The idea would be that we never have to defend Taiwan. All right. Um, and that Taiwan can defend itself. So China's in trouble. Demographic collapse, um, uh, unhappiness among the people, economic, real ch- economic challenges, not, not just small economic challenges, but real significant economic channels. A lot, of the, a lot of the central planning along the industrial policy is blowing up in their face in some regard. You know, they, 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 there's, while they've invested heavily in EVs, and they might become the dominant player in the world in EVs, in electric vehicles, it's cost them a fortune. A fortune. Which is, again is is a cost of economic growth. Uh, that is, you might get economic growth in the short run because the industry is taking off, but the industry is inefficient, it's unproductive, it's it's and it's destroying capital and it's destroying wealth. And that leads to stagnation long term. So uh, industrial policy often looks in the short run as being a huge success. Looks, you know, if you look at China and you see the uh, uh, solar panels and uh, uh, they, they dominate batteries and electric vehicles, it looks like wow, what a huge success! It's not an accident that these industries are peaking or, or, or achieving this massive success, just as the rest of the economy is shrinking, because it's been a massive misallocation of capital. A massive misallocation of capital. There's a story, I think it's in the Wall Street Journal. Where is it? Oh, I closed it. But there's a story, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, about, um, oh no, here it is, in Bloomberg, about millions of EVs, of electric vehicles abandoned, uh, and, and are piling up in cities. Massive quantities of these cars, uh, uh, you know, A, because... They keep churning them out because they're heavily subsidized. So they keep churning them out, new models, new models, new models, and and they have the old ones have no value given how cheap the new models are. So people just abandon them and go get a new model, and, and then um, you've had a, a number of collapsed uh, rights-sharing companies that were using these cars and they were abandoned. So there are millions of these cars spewed all over the the, the cities and. Uh, you know, in in uh, in in these massive lots, there's some pictures here of just these massive lots of falling apart EVs, and and what are you going to do with them? The batteries are useless. You can't recycle the batteries because the batteries don't have the capacity of new EVs. You can maybe recycle the steel, but but what are you what are you going to do with all this massive? They don't know what to do with them. They're just sitting there, hundreds of them, right? Um, and You know, so collapse of rights sharing and just the churning of these cars because they're so cheap because they're so heavily subsidized. So the economic models, the market is not playing playing a role here. Supply and demand is not playing a role here. So what is going on is, is you get excess supply and you get, uh, you know, crazy phenomena, And as a consequence, that all leads to misallocation of capital, which leads to stagnation. All right, let's take your questions. Again, uh, I'm eager to get questions uh, about China, so please do that. I'm also eager for us to get to our goal, so we're about $400 short of our goal. So please consider asking questions. If you're going to ask questions, ideally, they're $20 or above, $50, $100, $200, uh, somewhere that really gets us closer to our goal, uh, to what we're trying to get to. So uh, uh, please uh, consider, we've got over hundred people watching right now, five bucks from every person watching would get us there. So you can also do a sticker uh, with just an amount and, uh, and that would get us there too. So I don't want to have to mention that every two minutes and I won't, I'm not going to. I just hope that you see value for value and you get something. Who else is going to do an hour show, an hour 15 on, on China go into depth in the economy, uh, this kind of uh, overview, not depth so much as broad perspective on the economy, uh, and about the future and the geopolitics of it. So uh, please consider supporting what I do. All right, Uh, let's see, that's off topic, that's off topic, Uh... that's kind of off topic, that's off topic, Uh, let's see. Uh, a few of these that are on China. Alex says, um, is China worth going on, uh, to on vacation? Or do you recommend against that? Why? I've been really enjoying the news roundups and shows on the dollar. Great. I'm, I'm really happy you've enjoyed them. Uh, thank you. Um, you know, I think China's an amazing place to go on vacation, right? It, it's, it's, it's got some of the most beautiful scenery in the world. Uh, a lot of it is places that Americans have never been to and don't know. Uh, the Chinese themselves, at least last time I was there and every time I was there, uh, incredibly friendly to Americans. They like Americans a lot uh, and, and, uh, uh, and and they're incredibly friendly. You, you have to be able to deal with the fact that they won't understand you. You have to be able to deal with the fact that you're going to struggle to get around and, and, uh, and stuff like that. Uh, You know, transportation is not that easy. Um, Getting people to understand English is not that easy. You know, everything about, about being a tourist in China is going to be harder than Europe um, or even Japan because they just don't have the tourist infrastructure in many of these places. So you're going to spend, you need to spend money on guides. You need to spend money on, on somebody who can really show you around, translate and, and be with you. So, uh, yeah, so you, you're not just meandering and getting lost, but it is amazing the, the scenery. Uh, whether you go up to the Yellow Mountains, or whether you go to uh, Guilin, or where, so I've been a tourist all over China and I've loved it and, and really, really enjoyed it and benefited enormously from it. So um, yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely encourage you, uh, encourage you to do that if if you can. Uh, you know, it's going to cost you a little bit in terms of primarily in terms of. Um, Having a guide and and uh, you know private guides uh, and, and drivers and things like that, it does it's not expensive, but it it does add up. So, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, go out into the countryside. I, I mean, definitely go to be ba- definitely go to Shanghai. Definitely, 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 do not miss Shanghai. Shanghai is maybe the most spectacular in terms of skyscrapers and all of that. Maybe the most spectacular city in the world. It's just stunning, 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 stunning. So I've been going, first time I was in China was 2005, and then I was there in 2008, and then I was there in, I think, 12, 16, 18, 19, during that period even more. And, yeah, I I, I loved it, and, and on at least, let's see, one, I think twice, I combined the trip with touristy stuff. And uh, yeah, the touristy stuff was definitely worth it and and highly enjoyable. Uh, Okay, so a few people have given money. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you, Wes. Uh, Who else do I have to thank here quickly? Uh, Thank you, John. Thank you, another John. John Parker, John Bales. Thank you, Rand. Uh, Really appreciate the support. Uh, So. We're getting closer. We're getting closer to halfway to where we need to be. So ticking away at it. But you need this, you know, you need to keep this, uh, you need to keep us on track here. All right. uh, Let's see. Uh, That's Richmond song. Well, okay. uh, Hopper Campbell says, will China or Argentina have a free market revolution before we do? If Javier Millet wins and she is overthrown and Vivek becomes GOP nominee, will you become an optimist? Yeah. I mean... Millet is this massive experiment. I'm just eager to watch it and see what happens and uh, how bad could it get in Argentina, given how bad it already is. So I'm, I'm, I'm curious to see the experiment playing out in Argentina. Um, I can imagine ways in which that would be negative for free markets in the rest of the world to the extent that he fails or to the extent that he lands up emphasizing his Catholicism over his free market stuff. But I'm willing to take that risk just to see what happens. I'm, I'm at an age where I just, yeah, it's, I'm curious. I'm, I, I want to see action. Achieving of a throne is a big, big one. I mean, I think it's going to take a lot. It's very difficult. It's very challenging. Chinese are very tradition bound. It's very hard to make dramatic changes. I mean, it happened when Mao died, but even then it took like three years uh, you know, two years from Mao's death, and thing uh, until Deng actually started making changes, and even then they were slow. Really picked up in the early eighties, uh, but we'll see. I mean, if she is overthrown, that'll be amazing. But of course, what replaces him? Is it a? Uh, is it somebody who's even more committed to Marxism, or is it somebody who's committed to reforms and and the free market? We will see. Uh, you know, it, it's not easy to tell. Uh, you know, Vivek, I, I, I'm, I'm very, very mixed about Vivek. I just saw a video of him. I commented this on, on Twitter. It's great. He, he, like, goes after the Fed and all this stuff. He's anti-gold standard, which is a big mistake. He doesn't understand economics, unfortunately. But then he says, I, I'd fire 90% of the people who work at the Fed. Yes, I'm, I'm 100% behind that. And he says, I would give them one mandate, and that mandate is uh, uh, stability of the dollar. Now... So he'd keep fiat currency, but, but he'd make it said. Now, I'm all for that. I think if you're going to keep fiat currency, that's the way to do it. Fire 90% of the people at the Fed, uh, because too many PhDs, they can only screw up, and then give it give it this mandate. But then, uh, first, we just have to accept how difficult that is. That would require a law. That would require Congress to act. The president cannot unilaterally change the mission of the Federal Reserve, the Federal Reserve is beholden to Congress. Congress passes the law that, that created the mandate for the Federal Reserve. See, so you would have to change the law. They'd have to get a, a majority of senators, 60 senators and a majority of House members to vote with him. Very difficult to do that. that kind of stuff, right? And then, so A, he dismisses the dollar kind of stupidly. And then he says something like, the working class, 90% of Americans have not seen their real wages rise over the last 40 years or something. And then I go, I want to rip up my hair. It's like, God, that is such a myth. That is so stupid. That is so wrong. It's, it's again, the same nonsense as... And again, if, if, if everybody says it, if you say it, this I've learned from the left. The left is really, really good at this. Because this is, this is a line from the left. The left has been claiming that the working class and a majority of Americans have not seen their wages rise. And they've been saying it for the last 10 years. Really, since the financial crisis, they've said since the Reagan Revolution, since before Reagan, since 1978, the working class wages have not gone up. Now, I know that's wrong. The numbers show it's wrong. Everybody knows it's wrong. But if you say it over and over and over again, and if you say it from the perspective of, if the intellectuals say it, and then the politicians say it, and they keep saying it, and they say it, and they say it, and they say it, it, people believe it, including, you know, the guy who sings. rich men, north of Richmond, they believe it. My wages have not gone up since 1978, right? And then what happens is the left says it and says it, and everybody believes it. So So people even on the right, like the common person on the right, says, oh, well, my wages haven't gone up. So then the politicians on the right start saying it, and then everybody's saying it. And it's wrong. It's wrong. It's not factually correct. It's factually a myth. But if everybody, it's like climate change, if everybody just repeats the myth over and over and over and over and over again, and nobody stands up to challenge it, and nobody stands up to question it, nobody says anything, then the myth is perpetuated. And Vivek is playing that game. Now, I know he has to appeal to his base, he has to tell them they're victims, and they're being oppressed, and it's the fault of the Chinese, and it's the fault of the Fed, and it's the fault of everybody in the world. It's the fault of immigrants, of course, and it's the fault of, except His parents, and it's the fault of the elites and Donald Trump was their savior, but Donald Trump is tainted, so now it's Vivek is their savior. So, so Vivek does not strike me as you know as as I I I wanna I keep wanting every time he says something good like shrink the Fed and all this. I want to like him. I want to support him. I want to be able to come on the show and say, guys. You have got to vote for Vivek in the primary. I would love to be in a position to say that. And I'm not, it's not like I'm some perfectionist who wants a candidate who is 100% aligned. I'm willing to accept that he's going to say what he says about God. I'm willing to accept a lot of the bullshit he says. But what then? Now, if it was Vivek versus Biden, I'd vote for Vivek. There's no question, right? But right now, it's not Vivek versus Biden. It's Vivek versus all these other Republicans. Uh, and, and you know, and now's the time to criticize and now's the time to, to get them to be better. And again, every time they perpetuate this lie about incomes, they're emboldening the left. Every time... They make uh, th- this, this rich man, whatever, they're emboldening the left. They, or at least they're emboldening not the left. They're emboldening leftist economic policies. And that's just stupid. That's just stupid. But I know, you can't stand up on stage, because I've done this. You, if you stand up on there on stage and say, no, 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 you're all better off. You think you're worse off. You're better off. Now, if I got elected, you'd be much better off, Right? So uh, your wages have gone up. They could have gone up like five times more. But they did go up. You guys are in good shape. You'd be booed off the stage. Rotten tomatoes would be thrown at you. But that's the state of American culture where saying the truth is unacceptable to the masses. The masses don't want to hear the truth. They have no interest in... Oh, let me find this line. This is a great line. Um, It was a great line by this commentator... Uh, that is just... It was just so good. Um, once again I'm going to find this because... All right. Uh, let's see. Ta-ta-tum, ta-ta-tum. I copy pasted it into somewhere. Let me see if I can find it. <laughs> I can't. <laughs> All right. If I can't find it, then... Oh, here it is. This is a line from Vlad Vexler, who's excellent on Russia... I don't think the rest of his ideas, you know, are excellent. But on Russia, is very good. But this is the line about populism. This is so good. A key difference between the liar politician and the post-truth populist politician, i.e. Trump. The former deceives citizens. The latter enters into a co-conspiracy with citizens in which both parties half agree that truth doesn't matter. (laughs) Now, that's brilliant. That is the best explanation for what post-truth populist politics is. It's a co-conspiracy in which citizens and the and the, the, the politicians agree, or kind of agree. It's not even agree completely, half agree. The truth doesn't matter. So it's not just lying. Lying is easy. Every, every politician in history has lied. They all lie, right? Some more, some less, but they all lie. It's when the public doesn't care if you're lying anymore. When the public accepts that most of what you're saying is a lie. And you're in on it. And you're winking to one another. And you've accepted the fact that lying is okay. Everybody's accepted the fact that lying is okay. Including your supporters, that's when you get to this post-truth populist Trumpist politics. And that I think is brilliant because I've never, heard, I've never heard anybody define it quite this good. Because it takes it away from, well, what's unique about Trump? He, he just lies and it's, and, and it's I, I always said, well, he lies and he doesn't care about lying. Everybody else seems to care, but it's not that. It's that he knows that his audience doesn't care that he's lying. He knows that they're okay. Not that they don't care. They're okay with his lying. That they're in on a lie. That they're all participating with it. I don't know how we got into that topic. But anyway, um, I, you know, it's going to be hard to make me an optimist, Hopper uh, Campbell. But uh, I'm curious about what happens with Millay. And uh, if Vivek is the nom- GOP nominee, yeah, I mean, I'll certainly be... Uh, 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 significantly more positive than uh, if Trump was a nominee. So I'll, I'll, I'll be, you know, anybody but Trump. But you know, uh, Vivek would make life interesting. I'm, 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 as you notice, I'm, I'm interested in interesting these days. I, I want, I want something interesting to happen rather than all this stagnating, boring stuff that they're doing. Uh, Anne says, "Is it possible your anger about Trump was a factor in not seeing the China threat early enough?" Um, maybe I don't think so because, uh, uh, you know, I still think that my, uh, my comments about China at the time were right. Um, you know, the, and, and I don't think, I don't think, uh, I don't think Trump was tough on China. So I don't think it was that Trump was tough on China that he saw something I didn't. Because I think Trump has been weak on China, particularly relative to Biden. I think Biden has been a lot tougher on China than Trump has been, was. Uh, What else? Um, I think I probably stayed too positive about China for too long, but I don't think it's because of Trump. I think it's because of my experiences in China. And and I I just, it just, I, I, I had a, what do, you, what do you call it, a, 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 a first-handed bias? Um, and it wasn't until I went there in, in 2018, I think it was 2018 or early 2019, and when it was clear that, yeah, it was, everything was being clamped down, it was over, and then I shifted. But nothing Trump did about China was right. I mean, maybe with the exception of, of some of the military uh, stuff, nothing he did about China was right. The tariffs were wrong. I mean, uh, Biden's restrictions on selling them advanced chip technology is much, makes a lot more sense than than the tariffs. So I still think Trump was, and, and his, his, uh, his uh, I think Trump significantly weakened the United States vis-a-vis China by going and, and groveling before the dictator of North Korea. I think that was a massive foreign policy error and mistake. Um, I think that Trump I, you know, what did Trump do vis-a-vis China other than, t- oh, he kept us out of the TPP, which was a massive mistake vis-a-vis the Pacific. And uh, Trump, what else did Trump do? So, I don't know, I, you know, uh, what were the factors that made me too optimistic about China? I think it's primarily my personal experiences there uh, and, and my, my, the people I knew there, but uh, I, I don't think it has anything to do with Trump. Maybe I'm wrong. What do you foresee the relation between Russia and China becoming? I think it's going to be ultimately and and continuously be a a form of a rivalry. I do not see under any circumstance, uh, under any foreseeable circumstances, I mean, I might be wrong, an alliance, a proper alliance, a real alliance. I don't think Putin wants uh, to align with China because China would be significantly superior to him and uh, he doesn't want to play second fiddle to Xi. She might want an alliance primarily to distract the United States from China, but it's not clear that's working. China, The United States still seems to be pivoting towards China while supplying weapons to Ukraine and doing a pretty good job at it, even though it's a Biden administration and doing a pretty good job at it. Uh, so, yeah, I mean— the idea that Russia and China are going to align and create a currency and have this BRICS thing is pure, pure fantasy and uh, and, and delusion. Uh, BRICS means nothing. The Chinese and the Russians do not see eye to eye on most things. The only thing they see eye to eye with is opposition to, Ru- to the United States. And the only thing that can bring Russia and China into each other's arms, I will say this, the only thing that can bring... China and Russia into each other's arms is if the United States keeps pushing China and pushing China and pushing China and, and and uh, you know, pushing us towards more and more kind of a cold war. I think that is what might lead China and Russia to align themselves. But I think under normal circumstances, China and Russia do not like each other, don't trust each other. It goes back even to Mao's days when they didn't like or trust each other. It's why Mao opened up to Nixon. It's why Nixon went to China. It's because China and Russia were were unfriendly. I don't think they're they're, they're natural friends right now. Uh, Both of them are competing. I'll give you one more geopolitical thing. Both Russia and China are competing for influence in Central Asia. They both want the stands. Uh, Russia believes that Kazakhstan and Tajikistan and Kazakhstan and all these stands are part of theirs. China thinks it's they want influence there. They believe Russia is a fading power, and I think the war in Ukraine has just emphasized that more to them. Um, so, um, so yeah, I I I I think that uh, setting up. I, I think we have to play this balancing act of not um, not driving our relationship with China into a cold war, and at the same time not appeasing the Chinese. And I think. I think uh, that is not hard to do um, if you're just smart about it. And, and the problem is that I think that uh, Trump was really dumb about it. Biden's a, you know Biden is, is also dumb about it. Uh, he does some good things, like the, the chip restrictions, but then then he, he, he just does things that just whose sole purpose is to make it clear that we're heading towards a Cold war. It's just, it's, just, uh, it's just silliness. So uh, there is a way to calibrate the relationship where we don't give in to them we, we, and we assert our presence in the Pacific Ocean and we assert the fact that we are not going to allow them to, uh, to upend the shipping lanes uh, from, uh, from Asia to the United States. Uh, we, we can support in much more aggressively than we do today Taiwan, South Korea, and Japan, and encourage them to uh, build up their militaries. And uh, we can trade with everybody, and encourage, in particular, trade with non-Chinese. And that's what the TPP was going to do. It was going to increase free trade. It wasn't a free trade deal, but it was going to increase free trade. That is, it was going to reduce barriers to trade. I'm always for reducing barriers to trade, even if they're not reducing them to zero, which is the ideal, Better reduce a little bit than to zero. Um, so, no, I, I don't see Russia and China becoming allies in any significant way. Uh, dictators, you remember uh, Stalin and Hitler were allies. How long did that last? I mean, dictators don't do very well as allies, particularly when they both seek dominance. Right. If one's powerful, and one's weak. That can work. But if they both perceive themselves to be powerful, it won't work. All right, let me just see if there are any other China uh, questions. Yeah, one. Um, All right, um, $20 questions, guys. And if anybody has and, and is willing to support this with 50 or or $100 that'll be great so we can reach our target today. Today, not tomorrow. Uh, No one says there is also the Malay and you talked about here in the West so it's interesting to hear the same is happening in China but worse. Yeah, it's definitely happening in China and uh, there's a sense in which it's worse because they're starting out in worse shape. They're they're poor. They're already poor. Um, And It's, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's sad. It's sad because China was the most energetic, vibrant, exciting place I'd ever been to when I went there for the first time and when, when they went there pre this current decline. And it's lost that vibrancy and energy and optimism and positivism about the future and excitement. And that's sad, sad for any people. If you love humanity, if you love people, if you love the human race, then you're saddened when th- stuff like that happens. All right, let's, uh, let's do $20 questions and then we'll do the rest. Uh, we still got a while, so still plenty of time to make up. Again, we've got over 100 people watching live, so three bucks from each person right now. Value for value is a trade, it would get us over the limit, so please consider doing a sticker. To support the Iran Book show, you can also support the show with a monthly contribution on Patreon. Patreon is great. Uh, And on PayPal through Uronbrookshow.com slash support. All right. Pablo uh, uh, asks, should an objectivist lawyer make use of unfair, non-objective law to win a case? I mean, today, I I think you've got to use what's available. That is, you can't, as a lawyer, you can't say well, this law is objective, so I'm going to pay attention to it. This You can't do that. And, you know, you, you have to treat the law as the law. It's one of the things that makes being a lawyer very, very difficult, or a judge being very, very difficult. Do you ignore non-objective laws? But you can't, because otherwise the, the whole rule of law falls apart. And you, you've got to, you don't want to be immoral, but if, if the law says X, then that's X. And take advantage of it or, or don't take advantage of it but you've got to you've got to respect that's your job you've got to respect the law as it is and use it as it is right and you know if you can fight at the same time against the non-objective laws but you can't lose a case because or, or, or um, I don't know if you're prosecutor or not prosecute a case or if your judge rule against someone, you have to go by the law, the way the law actually is. You can't go by your philosophical judgment of whether a law is just or right or objective or not. It's, um, you know, that, that's the cost you pay for being a lawyer. Very hard, very hard. All right, Shazbot for $50. Your valuation of the rich man song reminded me of Zero Foray. Pharrell, Pharrell, Siro Pharrell. I don't know who that is. The master sword teacher from Game of Thrones. Oh, yeah, that guy. He said that the key to great swordmanship is true seeing. Is this an ability that you share with him? (laughs) You know... um, Certainly, I think that one of the things that makes me effective at what I do is that I see through the bullshit and that I care about truth. I care about truth. I don't think a lot of people care about truth. And and that's why we're seeing the cultural decline that we're seeing. I think people care about uh, reaffirming their prior beliefs. I think people care about uh, not being wrong. I think people care about you know, not a, be, being, being uh, 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 you know, uh, connecting, uh, not offending other people, not offending themselves, whatever. But I think that one of the things that makes me what I am is that I care about the truth. I seek the truth. I'm not interested, Is is this red or is it blue, is it Republican, is it Democrat, is it is it consistent with objectivism? Isn't it consistent with objectivism? Is it consistent with that? Is it, is it? Is you know maybe you know was I have to defend China because hey I said stuff on China in twenty fifteen that I, that I I was wrong about I need to I need a I need to defend that at all costs. Yes, even when it comes to Trump, especially when it comes to Trump, because so many of you and I've, look, I've given up huge quantities of revenue, huge. Because I'd rather be true to the truth than suck up to you, my audience, or distort in order to uh, present a view that is, I don't know, that is uh, palatable to certain people. I have the courage to say it like it is. And uh, some of you respect that, and I think that's why you support the show. Uh, but I know that some of you don't, and uh, and why you don't support the show, and and why some people have abandoned the show and left and gone gone away, and I've I've lost huge numbers of people, and and it's directly correlated to things that I say that are unpopular. So yes, I you know I, I don't know that I share it with uh, Cyril Farrell because I can't remember what n- the nature of his truth seeking is. I think he had it was more mystical in that case, but yes. Um, I consider myself a truth seeker and I think I'm pretty damn good at it doesn't mean I don't make mistakes doesn't mean I'm not wrong it just means that I'm always looking for what is true and what is right and I try to correct when I discover that I'm wrong and you've heard me say I'm wrong on several times (laughs) All right. let's see Yeah, if you like the show, do a sticker, do a split chat. All right, Liam says, off topic, but in Israel, did you feel a lot of pressure to be friends with all your neighbors, whereas in America, people leave you alone? Yes, absolutely. Israel has this, you know, you got to fit in, you got to be part of society, you got to be, everybody's your cousin, everybody's your friend, everybody's your relative, everybody's in your business, which I don't like. In America, people leave you alone. Did you find people in Texas were more neighborly than Southern California yeah I think generally that is true people know neighborly but people in Southern California were very friendly and and still had this attitude of you know we can be friends we cannot it doesn't matter you know basically leave you alone and uh but I, I didn't find people in California cold people in Southern California were very friendly and Northern California as well in San Jose we we knew some of our neighbors and didn't know other of our neighbors but the same was true in Texas. So I, I found people in America, in both places, super friendly. People in Austin were more free people than, more friendly than people once you left Austin. Maybe because my wife, uh, anyway. I, uh, I, I think there's, there's more racism in parts of, of, of Texas than many people realize, at least when I lived there, once you leave kind of the metropolitan areas. Um, and uh, and we experience that because my wife does not look, you know, like a like a white Texans Texan. Clark, are free market ideas becoming mainstream enough in the culture that enough people will view them as a legitimate alternative to implement in real economic disarray takes place, like we're seeing in Argentina? Well, again, I, I don't think that's what you're seeing in Argentina. It's not like. Free market ideas are mainstream in Argentina. It's not like people see it as a legitimate alternative. People are pissed off. They're angry. They're upset. And they're willing to try anything. And then comes this guy who is angry, reflects back the anger, and who happens to be a free market guy. And he yells and he screams and he's entertaining and he's charismatic and he gets them riled up. It's not because they're free market. And he might not win. But it's, there is no, they're not mainstream, these ideas. And I, I, you know, so don't view what's happening in Argentina as some fantastic positive sign of the world, the world is shifting, because it's not. The reality is Argentinians are so desperate, they're so angry, they're so pissed off, that they're willing to take a shot at a crazy man. Not because they agree with his economic policies, but because what the hell? Everybody else is screwed up. Let's go with it. So let's roll the dice. And that's not a that's not a sign of significant cultural change. Um, and and I don't think one projected onto America. And I, I don't see free market ideas becoming mainstream. I just don't see it. it uh, the contrary. I think I think free market ideas are losing ground. And you can see by the fact that. Not a single Republican candidate is making free market ideas the hallmark of their campaign because they know it's a losing strategy. Uh, Adam says Biden does everything for Ukraine two years too late. I agree. Would Ramaswamy send weapons to Ukraine on time? Probably not. I, I, but I don't know, right? I, I have a feeling that Ramaswamy's position in Ukraine might change once he's actual president. And once, once he's actually in that position to make those kind of decisions, I think most of the Republicans, uh, that would be the case. I, I, I do, however, encourage the Ukrainians to kick the Russians out before the U.S. elections um, because uh, better, better the, for them, it's better to, to, to get the weapons now from the Biden administration than to see if Republicans feel like they want to give it to them or not. Uh, but you know, but somebody like Ramaswamy, who I think is smart and is not ideologically anti-Ukraine and not he has no love of Russia, uh, he might be convinced once he's there to keep supporting uh, Ukraine and might be convinced with the rational argument that if we actually give them the weapons fast, they can win fast and get this over with, rather than giving them this trickle-trickled uh, weaponry slowly. Lewis, what would you say to people that tell you their grandparents lived under Soviet communism and told them it was a great period and life was great? I tell them their grandparents don't know what they're talking about and that uh, they are, to the extent that they believe that, they're brain dead and, and that's what communism did to them. It, it, it fried their brain. Um, and uh, But I knew people in the 1980s who came from the Soviet Union to Israel in this case and and said so they hated Israel. They, they wanted to go back to the Soviet Union. I mean, they hated going to go into a grocery store and have choices. What, what do I need the choices from? Seven types of toilet paper. You know, just give me one toilet paper. What, what do I need this for? It's just a headache. Well, but that's, their mind is fried. They've lost a sense of personal value. They've lost a sense of what is possible in life. They've lost a sense of personal values. And that's what the Soviet Union did to them. The Soviet Union destroyed their sense of self, destroyed their sense of personal values. And, and, and to the extent that personal values were gone, uh, yeah, Soviet Union was fine. It was comfortable. It was If you're brain dead, Soviet Union's okay. But that's what they did. That's how they survived for as long as they did. And, and, and the people who rebelled against the Soviet Union were the young who hadn't, who rejected this idea of no personal values. And it's only because they were slowly introduced to, I don't know, to genes and rock and roll and, and, and personal values from the West. And suddenly they said, whoa, why don't we have that? Why can't we experience that? The older people, they'd already accepted. They'd already accepted their personal values mattered none. So don't, don't pay attention. Just because somebody's old doesn't mean they're wise. Um, Seth says, says, I love your show, but people who disagree with me are brain dead. No, but in this case, they are brain dead. I mean, that's the reality. I'm not saying it's an argument. It's a reality. It's the truth. They are brain dead. People who think that life under the Soviet Union was wonderful are brain dead. And their brain was destroyed under the Soviet Union. Their brain was fried under in, in that regime. That regime destroyed the self. It destroyed an orientation towards self. It destroyed an orientation towards values. And therefore, they have no ability to appreciate freedom because they freedom was denied to them for so long. Personal values were denied to them for so long. That they never, once they once Soviet Union fell, they never managed to gain an appreciation for personal values and an appreciation for freedom. And in that sense, maybe brain dead is wrong. Maybe it's the, their soul is dead. But whether that's a good argument or not, I you know I I wouldn't argue with your grandparents. I think it's a it's a bad idea to argue with people. If somebody tells me. I lived under the Soviet Union, and life was better then, I would say, okay, and I would walk away. There's no argument, because they're brain dead. So I'm not saying that you should argue to them, oh, grandma, grandma, you're brain dead, and they go, oh, yeah, that's right. Thank you for enlightening me. Of course, that's not going to happen, but that's why you can't argue with them. They were indoctrinated, but it's not just indoctrinated. I mean, you have to read We the Living. If you read We the Living, you get it. Their their individuality, what made them them, what made them unique individual human beings, was wiped out systematically by a collectivist regime that didn't care about the individual, that wanted the individual to have no identity, to have no values, to have no reality and succeeded. And, and the grandparents are just proof that they succeeded. All right, I, yeah, anyway, um, all right, okay, last reminder, um, you know, with a few $20 questions we can make our goal. We've still got a bunch of questions for me to answer. So please consider supporting the Iran Book Show with a sticker, but even $5, even $2, even $20, $100, $200. Um, Just a reminder that you can use that sticker feature to support the show value for value. I mean, yeah, I I just want to say one more thing. The real evil of the Soviet Union, the real evil of communism and collectivism, is not the economic stuff. It's not the authoritarianism. It's what it does to the human soul. It's that it crushes your individual identity. It crushes your ambition. It crushes who you are. It crushes your capacity to value. That's the real evil. And to the extent that certain grandparents have that, it's to that extent that they were successful in doing that. And that's evil. Well... uh, if you have a question for me, use the super chat. You can just do it with $2 or $5. Why are you asking in the chat? I mean, it's some people, are, I'm not going to answer them because some people are putting money uh, to ask questions and then I, I, I'm not going to answer this. So if you're interested in, for example, how an ideology can make you brain dead, $5 will get, you know, through the chat and I'll answer that gladly. But And and the same with the rest of you, you comment and you ask questions and you almost never contribute to the actual show. You let you free ride, completely free ride, off of everybody else who actually does. Um, that Doodle Bunny. Oh, thank you, Naris, Narcissa. Narcissa, thank you. Really appreciate the $20. That's great. That Doodle Bunny says, in regard to your critique of Richmond's song, why, why is it whining for people to vocalize when they're being screwed? Are you whining when you complain about your show not going? Yeah, I mean, I am whining. I probably shouldn't do that. Uh, you know, you should call me out when I'm whining. Please don't. Um, yeah, I think it's whining when somebody complains about stuff and has no solution to offer. And I think, I think to admire somebody's whining about how bad things are, um, I mean, but it's it's so concrete-bound, the whining, right? Um. I don't know. It's it's blaming others. It's not taking any kind of responsibility. But yeah, I, I get it. You, you could have protest songs that are complaining about the state of the world and complaining about your own life. But this is so um, concrete bound. I mean, I'm thinking of, I don't know, think about think about some of bob Dylan's songs that are really about complaining about the state of the world complaining about what's going on in the world there's so much more fundamental and deep uh, I, I you know I, I i'm really turned off and maybe this is this is the issue right i'm really turned off by uh by uh, you know uh, the B, the bs wages the, the the way he talks about wages and uh, the fact that he has no semblance of a solution, and and it, the song is so political, and it's so narrow, it's just not interesting. But but yeah, complaining is okay if you're complaining about, yeah. I mean I mean you need to think about the difference between this and and uh, you know I don't know how does it feel to be you know to be on the road like a Rolling Stone, like a complete unknown. I mean. There's something much more um, psychological, much deeper, much more, uh, not quite metaphysical, much more uh, uh, ethical about what are you doing with your life, which, which Bob Dylan is challenging you. Or even when, when he says, uh, you know, uh, 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 blowing in the wind, the song Blowing in the Wind. It's, it deals with war and peace and hunger, and, and you know, it's a leftist song, but, but it deals with fundamental, deep, you know, big issues, and this guy's complaining about his wages and complaining about obese people. It's just, it's just, I find it, I don't know, I find it very, um, uh, uh, you know, very um, whining, and, and of course, you know, country music has the disadvantage of being whiny to begin with, right? Uh, the whole tone of it. But, yeah, I, I don't have a problem with a uh, song being down. I don't have a problem with a song being uh, complaining. Uh, but this song really comes out as shallow and, and, and uh, thank you, Jennifer, shallow is a good word, shallow and whining. And, and, you know, if I, if I whine here, then please let me know, because I shouldn't. All right. Richard, thank you. Uh, when I briefly worked in Russia, some people missed the old Soviet days. I assumed their families must have benefited from communism. What do you think? Yeah, I think in some cases that's the case, but benefited. Put that in quotes. You know, yeah, so they had a slightly higher standard of living than the average Joe. They still had a very low standard of living. The big thing with the Soviet system is they were taken care of. The big thing—I mean, this is this is the song, right? They 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 got their welfare check and they didn't have to think for themselves and they didn't have to they didn't have to go to go to uh, 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 they didn't have to get a wage. They just got a, a stipend or whatever. So um, it's so. I, I, don't think, I don't think it's just that they were taken care of. It's just that they have such a narrow view of the world. Like even the most taken care of person in the Soviet Union is living a pathetic life. So it's the fact that they've given up on personal values. That's the bottom line. Because if you have personal values, you don't want to be taken care of. You don't want to get favors. You don't want to live off of other people's backs, which is what all the people and, you know, who are taken care of in communism were. You want to make it. You want to build, you want to create, you want to do. And, and, but communism takes that out of you because when you act to create, to do, to pursue your values, they get crushed. They get oppressed. You're told, don't do that. You're not supposed to pursue your own values. And, and little children are probably told, don't do that. You're going to stand out. You mustn't stand out. You can't stand out, Johnny. If you stand out, the commies will come. If you stand out, they will come to get you. If you stand out, they come and get your parents. Don't stand out. Be like everybody else. Don't pursue your values. Don't pursue your happiness. Don't pursue what's yours. And it, it oppresses that, and it sucks the life out of a human being. And, and it's done from childhood. Free stuff is not good for you and of course free stuff can't last so you get less and less and less free stuff and you get poorer but free stuff is not good for you it's bad for you and telling you constantly don't pursue your values don't pursue your ambitions we will kill you if you do we will kill your family if you do we'll send you to the gulag if you do from childhood on that kills the human mind it kills the human spirit it's soul-destroying. Lewis says, why don't billionaires build skyscrapers as they used to because company boards have no ego? No, because uh, city cities won't approve it. Uh, they, 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 won't, they won't approve the – they won't zone it for skyscrapers. You still get skyscrapers. There's some new skyscrapers in San Francisco, mostly sitting empty these days. I just you know you can on Fifty Seventh Street in in Manhattan you can see some new skyscrapers so once in a while they get built uh, but the reality is that New York uh, the previous the previous mayor of New York said I don't want any more skyscrapers we're not going to approve any more skyscrapers and and then it's it's a certain ambition and a certain spirit and a certain sense of life that says I'm going to build skyscrapers and. Um, you know, that again, that's a, that's a way in which it's being sucked out. Even if you buy the air rights, you still have to get the approval of the city. The city has to approve your skyscraper. There the, were very, very ambitious projects to build beautiful skyscrapers in Chicago. And they were killed by the city council, by the rotten economy. Chicago still has some gorgeous skyscrapers, and some of them uh, are new, but... Um, So I, I'd say it's it's primarily city governments. And again, New York does have new skyscrapers. So you do see some uh, that have gone up. And, and even Chicago has some new skyscrapers. Again, I don't know who inhabits them, but they do have them. Um, the other thing is you need dramatic economic growth. But, uh, you know, you're not going to build a skyscraper in Palo Alto, which is a flat area. So Apple's not going to build a skyscraper instead they build that that you know, round building. But in San Francisco, uh, you know, uh, th- th- there's some skyscrapers that went up. Salesforce built the skyscraper. Uh, so uh, th- there's, still, there's still skyscrapers being built. Um, Bree says, if you like fast cars, you should look into a dready racing school. I did it today. It's fun and fast. I got up to 141 miles an hour and my honey got a blue ribbon. Oh, so cool. Um, I will, I'm copying the name of the race school, Adretti's Racing School. That would be fun. I would enjoy doing that. One of these days, one of these days, that would be uh, a blast. Let me just uh, find the place where I need to put this. There it is. All right. Um, thanks. Uh, thank you. Uh, thank you, Bree. Let's see, Wesley. By the way, we're we're less than $200, $10, $20 questions, $4, $50 questions, and we're at the target. Uh, Wesley says If there was an objectivist country stronger than the U.S., would it be moral for them to topple our government since our POV, we don't respect rights? Since, in their point of view, we don't respect rights. Um, I think objectively, we respect rights enough. Uh, that I, I don't think, and, and again, I think Iran had some principles about when a government is basically free and when it isn't. Uh, and, and I think that America still qualifies as basically free. So no, I, I don't think they would. Um, I don't think we're at the point where we have no sovereignty, which is the standard. We'd have to repress free speech much more than we do, we'd have to uh, repress free elections, and we'd have to have political prisoners. Three things that I don't think we really have. Free speech is the one most threatened. It's still not the level that I think uh, would qualify for. Not a free country. We can overthrow the government. Uh, That doodle bunny says, Life sucks. People are something shit. Change my mind. I don't... (laughs) Oh, you want me to change your mind? Uh... Life doesn't suck. Life is amazing. It's so much fun. Even in this crazy, uh, crazy uh, immoral world, you can still do amazing things. You can still experience beautiful things. You can still fall in love. You can still produce. You know, stop being so negative about the world in which we live. It's pretty amazing. All right, what is a soul according to objectivism? Uh, Rand wrote, we have a self-made soul, absolutely, but I'm not sure what that means. It basically means, you know, your your mind, uh, you know, everything, the content that you have in here, structured around the choices that you've made. So, uh, souls. I say a lot of people don't have a soul. A soul is the 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 the, the you know the the <laughs> you don't know. That's why I'm I'm, I'm trying trying to explain it. Uh, Ankar Gade has an excellent essay on this um, uh, in the Companions Ayn Rand Studies uh, that came out. Uh, it's an excellent essay on what a self-made soul is. And a self-made soul is basically the choices that you've made to build up a sudden a type of an attitude, a mind, a, uh, a, a you know, everything. Your, your, the the sum of your emotions and your mind, how you think, how your subconscious interacts with a, your, your psychopistemology, how your consciousness interacts with your psychology, and how all that interacts with your state of being and your emotional state and your emotional world. That integration, that which you would call I, is is the soul it's it's not something i can point to it's not a particular cell it's not a particular feature it's the full experience of a conscious being that is in control of his mind that has chosen his values that has built up it's it's more than a sense of life right it's 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 a sense of life of what it's it's essentially what makes you and most people uh, and it has, and it's integrated. It's an integrated whole if it's self-made, if it's made properly. And for most people, it's a mishmash, and it doesn't integrate into anything. It doesn't add up, really, into anything. I don't know if I did a good job there, but I, I will try to. Um, I will try to come back with a better. I'm writing down soul. I'll, come, I'll try to come back with a better answer to uh, to the soul question. What is your opinion of Alan Greenspan, RDF says. Uh, You know, um, I think he's Robert Stadler from Atlas Shrugged, if you've read Atlas Shrugged. Uh, He is brilliant, uh, knowledgeable, and a complete betrayer of his own values, a complete betrayer of his own uh, morality or or stated morality. I think at the end of the day, he is a second, Alan Greenspan is a second-hander, a social metaphysician, he feeds off of the group that he's with. When he was around Ayn Rand, he was brilliant and an objectivist. As soon as he went out of her circle, he adapted and absorbed whatever was around him. He, he was not a first hander; he was a second hander. Uh, uh, you know, and I and I and I really do think he he basically. Uh, Abandoned all the principles that supposedly he held when he was with, um, uh, with Ayn Rand. Um, he's a bad guy. He's, he's, he's a guy who sold his soul for power. Sold his soul for power. Sold his mind for power. If you read his autobiography, you get that from it. You don't even have to, I mean, he, he, to some extent, he knows it. It's in the biography. He didn't adapt to survive. He adapted to control. He adapted to, 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 he sold out. Didn't adapt to survive. He could have survived a variety of different things. He was very successful, independent of selling out. Don't ever let the same people disappoint you twice. Yeah, true. James says, people will look for your weakness so they don't have to listen to you. All right? Probably true. Yeah, I'm sure it's true. Uh, Seth says, you mentioned people moving from rural China to cities was a good thing. Should people who live in rural areas, regardless of country, move to more urban areas? Yeah, and they have. I mean, uh, 250 years ago, I mean, it's part of what civilization means. 250 years ago, almost all of the population was rural. Almost everybody lived in rural areas. And... The Industrial Revolution in the 20th century and the 21st century were periods of, uh, of of urbanization, of people moving to the cities. That happened in the West. It happened in England. It happened in Western Europe. It happened in America. And it's a healthy, civilizing process. You're richer because of the division of labor and the concentration of people, and concentration of people is a good thing, concentration of talent, Um you know, urban areas are, are, are richer, more diverse, they, they 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 they're more diverse in terms of opportunities. Uh, they are uh, they, they they provide they create more wealth. Absolutely. Uh, the whole process of the last I mean think about Rome. This is a I'll give you a good example. Uh, the Roman Empire saw massive urbanization. Because it was a civilization. All civilizations are centered around cities and see a process of urbanization. Uh, The the, the great example of this is Rome itself. Rome in the 3rd century AD had well over a million people in it. Well over a million people in it. Uh, Crowding is a good thing. Overcrowding over is complete subjective. Crowding is a good thing. And, and overcrowding, you know, crowding is, is a wonderful thing. That's why people do it. They do it constantly when they have the opportunity. So let me go back to Rome. Rome had well over a million people in it. At the peak of the empire, it had well over a million people. In 600 AD, 400 years later, it had 10,000 people. And that's the Dark Ages. There wasn't a city in Europe that had a million people until London in the early 19th century, when civilization came back. If you think about the Renaissance, the Enlightenment, if you think about the movement of people, uh, you know, they were moving to the cities, to where culture was, to where civilization was. And, and that's a process that we saw, you see, everywhere, everywhere in the world. You know, at the beginning of time, everybody's rule Cities are a major achievement in Mesopotamia, in Egypt, in Greece, uh, in, in and then in Rome. And then, you know, and then it implodes and everybody scatters to the countryside. They die and they scatter. And, they, and, and their wealth and their knowledge and their culture and their civilization declines dramatically. But a city is where you get a concentration of talent, of people... Cooperating with one another, trading. The countryside, particularly pre, uh, communica- pre-communication, pre-transportation, is a desert. There's nothing there. So cities are a reflection of wealth, and they help create wealth. They're amazing things, uh, and uh, so yes, I, I, I think that's supposed process. Now, whether in a like a in a in a in a tech intensive world where transportation is cheap and quick and easy whether that still holds vis-a-vis cities we'll see we'll see how humanity evolves but certainly over the you know for, for all of human history to date the movement from the countryside to the city is a sign of wealth prosperity and civilization and economic growth all right, I'm going to make this the last appeal. We have 109 people watching, which is pretty good. Um, you, we have uh, just a couple of minutes remaining. But if you'd like to support the show and show value for value, you're all listening. You must get some value from the show. It's gone on for over two hours. and I, 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 don't, I think this might be the first show that went for over two hours where we didn't make our goal. So $150 short of our goal. Um, Just a reminder. Frank says, Can Oliver get a better job if he shaved his beard? (laughs) I don't know. Probably. Um, You know, how you, whether you shave or not, how you dress and stuff like that, does matter in job interviews, it turns out. So maybe if he shaved his beard, he'd get a better job. But um, for some people, their beard is more important than a better job. I don't know. Um, Probably. But not what I hold against him is his beard. All right, everybody. Thank you uh, for all the super chatters. Really, really appreciate it. And um, thank you for all the listeners and watchers and everybody else. Seth says, I asked a $10 question and you gave a $20 answer. Here's the difference. Thank you, Seth. Uh, I really appreciate that. Uh, uh, That is is wonderful. Um, No shows tomorrow. We're back on our regular schedule on Monday. uh, So we'll do... uh, We'll do news roundup starting Monday morning, every day next week. We'll do a show on Thursday and on, on Tuesday and on Thursday. Um, and um, yeah, we will go from uh, there. Um, let's see. All right, I will see you all on Monday. Have a great weekend. Have a great weekend. I hope you enjoyed the show. Bye everybody.